Hey everyone, kind of whispering today because uh, I don't want Cindy and Riley to know that I'm in the children's resource room. Hope they don't see me in here. Now, I have a little confession to make today. Uh, sometimes I come down here in the children's resource room because this is where they keep a lot of snacks. I mean, some really good snacks. They have all these carts over here that they get everything loaded up for all the children's Sunday school classes. And uh, I come down here and look through some of these snacks. And I just got to tell you, my favorite snack they keep down here are these cheese balls. And they put them in these little Ziploc baggies for the class. And I just love these things. I don't know about you guys, but I love them. Anyway, there's, there's, there's not a whole lot of cheese balls in these little Ziploc baggies. But one day I was down here and guess what I discovered? Guess what? <laughs> I mean, I found the mother load of cheese balls. Look at this right here. I was so excited, it was amazing. Now, let me tell you something. Once I found the big mother load of cheese balls here, I'm not gonna mess with the Ziploc baggie with just a few of them. I know where the real source is. Now, what I've just done for you here is an illustration of our passage of scripture today. It's gonna talk about Abraham wanting a better country, and Abraham wanting something greater, better than his current homeland. And so when it comes to finding something better, and obviously this big old jug of cheese balls way better than a little Ziploc baggie of these, when you find what's better, you don't ever want to go back to what's inferior. Same thing for our spiritual life. Anyone, anything, any ideology that we would follow that is not Jesus is like this little bag of cheese balls. It's inferior. It's nothing. Why, once I followed Jesus, would I ever want to go back to this, to something that's inferior? So once you've found the best, stay with the best. Keep looking towards the best. Let the best drive your life, spiritually speaking, and that's Jesus. So in our passage of scripture today, that's what we're going to talk about. A new homeland, something that's better in Christ. All right, don't rat me out to Cindy and Riley that I'm down there in their uh, resource room stealing food. So some of y'all are looking at me going, you need to stay out of the children's resource room. You're down there a little too much. So today we're going to talk about uh, this very thing our eternal reward, our eternal home is being far superior than anything that we have here on this earth. And we're going to continue our study of the book of Hebrews for this whole year, and in particular recently our, our study of Hebrews chapter 11. So thinking about uh, that we're really just pilgrims on this earth looking for our eternal home, uh, remind me of a, a somewhat well-known story that I'm sure is a preacher story, and a preacher story of course is one that didn't happen but it's still true right? That's a preacher story. But it's about uh, the, the Rabbi Hofetz Chaim. Uh, rabbi Hofetz Chaim actually is a rabbi by a different name. He's from Belarus. But he wrote this book called the Hofetz Chaim. And the Hofetz Chaim is this book about being a pilgrim and kind of, you know, traveling light and not being attached to the things of the world. And it was such a well-known book that they basically gave the name of the book to the rabbi. So he became the Hofetz Chaim. So this is the part that's not, that all that is true. This is the part that's probably not true, but it's a little bit of a fable about the man who wanted to go visit the Hofetz Chaim when he was in the area of Belarus there. And uh, he finds out where the Hofetz Chaim lives and gets some permission or whatever. So long story short, he ends up at the Rabbi Hofetz Chaim's house. 
and uh, the rabbi lets him in. And when the man comes into the rabbi's house, he sees the rabbi's house is empty. It's just sparse, barren, nothing in there. And the only thing in the rabbi's house is this little wood table and chair and a cot and some books. And that's it. And so the visitor says to the rabbi, he says, Rabbi, where is all the rest of your furniture? And the rabbi just looks right at the visitor and says, well, where is your furniture? Didn't you bring it? And he says, Rabbi, I didn't bring my furniture. I'm, I'm just a visitor. And the rabbi looked at him and said, so am I. And that little story just encapsulates this passage of Scripture that we're going to study today, how Abraham and the people with Abraham were really just visiting on this earth, and that in reality, their heart and their mind and their focus was on another place, an eternal reward that God would give them. So let's, uh, let's take our Bibles this morning and let's turn to that passage, Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 13. And uh, the writer of Hebrews is uh, still talking about Abraham and, and going back to him, and we'll see more of Abraham even next week. And by the way, the writer of Hebrews is writing to these Christians, these Jews who have converted to Christianity, so, and, and he's trying to convince them not to go back to Judaism. So this is why we have a, a protracted section in Hebrews 11 about Abraham and his faith. So here's verses 13 to 16. And he says, so these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So let's think about this and what this passage means for us, and let's just try to unpack it a little bit here. And the first thing I think we want to see then is that faith is a journey. Faith means I'm a pilgrim. Faith means I'm passing through. I'm looking, I've, I've left someplace as a Christian, and now I'm heading on to a new place as a Christian. And so the whole thing here for a Christian is it's a journey and we're heading to the future, and this is the reward that God has for us. Now, you look at verse 13, these all died in faith. Who are the these all referring to? Uh, it could be that he's referring to all the names that are in chapter 11, all these people that had faith, they all died in faith. But probably the context means he's talking about Abraham and Sarah and the people that were with him. These are the people that died in faith. And it doesn't really matter because if you've died in, died in faith, whether you're Abraham or us or anybody, we're all still looking forward to this future reward, this future eternal home that God has for us. Now, here's the catch. Look at the verse with me again. The catch is, the interesting part is, is these all died, okay, in faith, and, and faith in what? Faith in God and faith in the promises. So they've received the promises from God. But here comes the catch. But they have seen, what's the them? The promises, and they have greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers on earth. Okay, so here's the thing. They never got those promises. They never got the fruition of those. So this is the interesting part of this. Here's Abraham. Here's the people with him. They have followed God in faith. 
God has given them these wonderful promises, but they all died. They all came to the end of their life, never actually having received the fruit, the reality, the tangibleness, if you will, of these promises. Now you think about it. What did God essentially promise Abraham? Two great things. First thing that he promised to Abraham was a land that he would possess. Abraham, I'm going to send you to this land. I'm going to take you here and you're going to possess it. But the reality is Abraham never actually possessed that land. He never technically owned any of it until the very end, which we'll talk about in a second. So he never owned it. We learned a couple of weeks ago, he lived in a tent the whole time, roaming around it. The second thing that God promised Abraham was descendants as many as the stars in the sky and as many of the grains of sand on the seashore. And yet, how many children did his wife Sarah have? Just the one. So he gets to the end of his life and he doesn't own any of this land and he doesn't see all of these descendants. So you stop there and you hear that and you go, wow, this Christianity thing sounds terrible. This kind of sounds like a tragedy, right? They had to greet these things. They had to see these things from afar. And yet what we're reading about here is really the reality of faith in God, the reality of being a Christian. It means that the focus of faith, the focus of following God, the focus of Christianity is not something that's temporal. It's not something that's material. It's not something that I can see or touch or spend but it's pointing, it's focusing, it's looking toward that which is eternal and that which is spiritual. Now, the scripture makes that very plain for all of us. It's pretty simple. You look on the screen, here's what Paul said of the Colossians. You set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Jesus said simply in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so we are not living for anything that's of a temporal, material thing. Now, don't get me wrong. As a Christian, do I get benefits right now on this earth in following God? Sure I do. I have peace with God, God gives me strength, God gives me his presence, God gives me wisdom, but at the end of the day, there is nothing on this earth that I am ultimately living for. At the end of the day, the focus of Christianity, the focus of my faith in Christ, the focus of my life should be nothing that I can see or taste or touch or spend, but what is eternal? Now, let's think about that then. They're called strangers, they're called exiles, they are sojourners, they are pilgrims. What does that look like for a, Christian, for, a Christian, for a Christian? What is a Christian called to do? A Christian is called to die to self, to uh, crucify the flesh, to take up the cross and follow Jesus, taking up the cross. I mean, life isn't necessarily going to be easy for you. As Christians, what do we do? We're constantly fighting the flesh. As Christians, uh, we do receive the peace of God, but there's always this sense then where I'm really not quite at home on this earth. There's always this sense for a Christian where I really don't quite fit in on this earth. Why? Because my heart should be on an eternal home, and that should be my focus. So, even at the end of his life. And by the way, you think about how did Abraham do this? 
You know, at some point you would think, halfway through living on the promised land, that Abraham might look at God and say, hey God, what's up? You said that all this would uh, come into my possession, so why aren't you wiping out all these Canaanite kings so I can take real possession of this property? Uh, Hey God, also, what's up? I don't have all these children like you were talking about. But never does Abraham, even though he doesn't follow God perfectly, but never does Abraham give up on his faith in God. In fact, he gets all the way to the end of his life and he is still having faith in God and still obeying God. Why? Because Abraham realized that even though this land that's promised to him, it's not going to be given in fruition in in, in this, this fullest sense while he's alive on this earth. The promises are eternal. And he understands that. Now, we need to think about where our citizenship lies. Does it lie on the home that we're looking forward to? Or does it lie on the home that we have come from before Christ? You know, so, someone sent me a thing one time and said, hey, you need to watch this sermon. It's really good. So, so I, watched, I watched it. And it was a sermon by a Latino pastor. And he has this really powerful part of a sermon. And, and he takes this piece of paper off the, 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 the pulpit and he holds it up in the air. And he says, hey, y'all... Y'all want to know what this is? This, this is probably the most important document in my, in my life. And he says, now all of us have important documents. We have a birth certificate. If we're married, we have a marriage certificate. We have driver's license. We all have important documents. But he says, this is so important to me. This is my naturalization papers. And so he kind of tells a story. In the, uh, in the early 2000s, this family came to the United States from Nicaragua. And, and they came as, as, as asylees because their country was war-torn. And so he explains this. When we came to the United States, we came, we were allowed to stay, but we weren't, we weren't citizens of the United States. We couldn't vote. We didn't have the full rights and privileges and everything of a citizen of the U.S. But he said, one day I went into an office in Miami and I took this really long test and then I made a pledge of allegiance to the United States and I walked out of that office with this piece of paper. And he says, now I am a legal, actual citizen of the United States. And he just kind of took that and you kind of turn it into kind of what we do here. You know, in reality, our citizenship paper, it does not say earth. It doesn't say this country or that country as a Christian. Our citizenship paper, and if you will, purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ and is ours through our faith in him. Our citizenship paper says Heaven. It says eternal life. That's where we're really shooting for. And so there's a sense then we're like, we're kind of like refugees on this earth. We're, we're pilgrims. We're passing through. There should be a sense of we really don't quite belong. Now, I'm going to tell you the coolest part of this whole passage of scripture. This, I love studying the Bible. This is why this, this, is, this is so cool. Just get, all, get a load of this. Okay, get a hold of this. This is amazing. Abraham lives a good long chunk of his life in this promised land that, he, that God says will be your possession that he actually never technically possesses until he gets to the end of his life. He knows he's soon probably going to die and his wife Sarah is right on death's door. So he goes to one of the Canaanites who owns the land and he goes to this guy Ephron the Hittite and he says, Ephron, I want to buy a little piece of your land. Isn't that interesting? Why does he want to buy land? Because he doesn't own any of it. 
And he says to Ephron, I want to buy a little piece of your land. In fact, I want to buy the cave of Machpelah. And I want to bury my wife in it when she dies. And you can tell Abraham was a respected man in Canaan there because Ephron says, oh, no, no, you don't need to buy it. I'll just give it to you. And Abraham insists, nope, I want to buy it. I want it to really technically be my possession. I want to buy it. And so Ephraim sells it to him, and he buys this cave. And when Sarah dies, he buries Sarah in it. And then the scripture says that when, when, when Abraham dies and breathes his last, he's buried with his people. And the big takeaway from that, you might read that and just skip right over that, but the really amazing, cool takeaway from that is this. Abraham understands then, it's not in this life that the full fruition of God's promises will be mine. It is actually in death. And so what Abraham knows is on this side of the ground, walking and moving around, I'll never see fully the promises of God until my body is under it. And then one day it'll be mine, the descendants, my descendants. And the whole point of that is it's not in this life. While I'm still breathing and talking on this earth, that the full manifestation of those promises are mine. It's after I'm gone. And by the way, then, doesn't this completely change death for those of us who are Christians? These all died in faith. Seems like lately I've been doing way too many funerals. And trust me, when you get a little older like me, tomorrow I'll be 52. You start, you start thinking about that whole idea of death and the end of your life, a little bit more of a reality. And every funeral I do and family I work with, you think about death, and I'm going to tell you, I don't know how people do it that aren't in faith. Because if you're not in faith, if you're not in Christ, what, what is death? It's the end of everything. It's hopelessness. It's despair. And so the world has this kind of motto, hey, since, since that's it, uh, when you die, you die, and it's all just terrible and sad. So then the world's motto is the one who dies with the most toys wins. And I'm sorry, let me just be blunt. That's dumb. What does the scripture say? You came into this world naked, and you're going to leave it the same way. Or in Oklahoma East, you came into this world naked, and you're going to leave it naked. Friends, don't you think right here is a much better approach to death? To me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, Paul didn't want to die, right? Paul says, hey, I'm going to live as long as the Lord wants me to live. But here's the thing, all of a sudden, look, if my citizenship and my focus and my passion and everything is no longer on this earth and it's no longer just in temporal stuff that's all going to fade away or as Jesus said, would be stolen or corrode or, or rust up, whatever. If all of my focus and passion and everything is on something that's eternal, that's still to come, then all of a sudden death is not this hopeless, morbid, terrible thing. Death becomes this gateway into what God has promised. Now, that doesn't put a little bit of hope in your spring and your step. I don't know what will. And so, friends, this has got to be our expectation as Christians. This is where our heart, this is where our focus lies. Not on anything I can see or touch or spend. 
but on what is eternal. Abraham understood that. Hey, the best part of God's promises is going to come to me after I'm dead. That's why I bought that cave. Now, friends, that should motivate you. I mean, that really should change your... When when I'm really thinking about living for what is to come, what I am expecting, it really kind of changes your present, doesn't it? So I brought a little something here. Golf club. Uh, By the way, thank you for being the first service today that didn't kind of go, when I pulled out a golf club, because several people went, you play golf? Uh, Well, I tried to. Y'all see my Dallas Cowboys head cover, by the way? It means every time I hit a shot, it goes straight, and I win the game. So, uh, no amen from you, Larry Roberts? Okay, come on, man. Larry, Larry and I commiserate and text each other all of our grievances about the Cowboys during the game, which we'll be doing later today, I'm sure. So, I go out and play golf. Now, let, let, let's, just, let's just think about this for a minute, Okay. Why on earth would I spend money on golf clubs? Why on earth would I spend money on a green fee? Why on earth would I go out there for three, four hours and sweat buckets to be hunting for a little white golf ball in the trees where I hit it? (laughs) Why would I do that? I'll tell you why. Because of the expectation. Well, let's just face it. Somewhere, Somewhere deep down in here, every time I get in the car and head to the golf course, there's a little something in me that says, will this be the day where I shoot my lowest score ever? Will this be the day when I get a little older, if I'm still able to play golf? Will, be, will this be the day when I shoot my age? By the way, in our 830 service, had two gentlemen, I was looking at them, both of them recently shot their age in golf. Very impressive. You know what that means if you play golf. <laughs> Every time I stand on the tee box... There's expectation. Is this going to be the longest drive I ever hit? Is this going to be the straightest drive I ever hit? Every time I stand on the putting green, am I going to actually roll? This will be the longest putt I make. Will I, by some crazy miracle, have read the green right and the ball will drop in the hole? Every time I stand on the tee of a par three, there's a tiny little expectation. Will this be my first hole in one? And so you know what causes me to spend the money? You know what causes me to spend the time? You know what causes me to sweat all the buckets? It's the expectation. But here's the thing. You ready? I'm never going to hit a hole in one. I'm probably never going to shoot my age. I'm probably never going to shoot a score as low as I think. I'm probably never going to do, I'm never going to hit a 400-yard drive. I'm never going to do any of that except, expect, except, this tiny little shred of hope and expectation that it might happen gets me up and gets me going. Now you take all of that and compare it to this. Because I am one zillion times more confident I will stand before God in heaven one day than I am that I'll ever hit a hole in one. And yet here I am, and my expectation that I actually might hit a hole in one, that I actually might hit a low score, it kind of, it, it drives me, it keeps me going. Well, how much more so should my hope in Christ drive me and shape me and motivate me? Y'all follow me? So, that's something we got to possess right there, gang. The reality, the assurance, Right? 
that what God has promised is one day going to be ours. We're living for that. It's going to make a big difference. Now, uh, here's the second thing right here. If I'm a pilgrim, then what am I doing? I'm leaving a temporal home. Now, I want you to look at this with me. Look back at your text. So here's Abraham and the others. They die in faith. Look, they acknowledge they were strangers and exiles on the earth. People who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. Now, look at this next part. Look at it. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, then they would have had opportunity to return. Now, let me explain a couple of things right here. First of all, look at the words. Exile, right? Stranger and exile. Look at this. Stranger. Have you ever heard of the English word xenophobia? Xenophobia is to have a really big fear of anything that, that's, that's foreign or anything that's different than you. That's xenophobia. We get the English word xenophobia for the Greek word translated stranger. So Abraham admits, I'm a stranger. That's what he, he self-identified, I'm a stranger. And what he means by that is in this promised land that God has promised to me, I'm a stranger. I don't quite fit in. There's a tension there. And you look at the next word, alien. This is a word used in the writer of Hebrews' day, uh, essentially of someone that was staying in an inn, in a hotel. There was a temporariness there. Even if they were staying there for a long time, there's just a sense where you don't really quite belong here. And so here's Abraham and his people, and even though they're in this land for years, there's this overriding sense, hey, we really don't quite belong here. Now, here's the important thing, and it fits the whole context of Hebrews. Look at this. Now, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, right? Back there in Ur of the Chaldees, where Abraham came from. Then when it says they would have had opportunity to return, what he means right there is they would have done it. So watch this. Watch how this happens. Watch. Abraham comes, God comes to Abraham. Hey, Abraham, I want you to leave your home. Ur, the city of Ur in the Chaldees and in what will be modern one day Babylon, that area. Uh, I want you to leave that and follow me and I'm going to give you these promises. And so Abraham, uh, he, he leaves it. But Abraham is so convinced in God. He, he, he's so convinced in the promises of God. What does the text say? That not once does Abraham ever do this. And what is he saying right here? This whole word opportunity, watch. Had Abraham done this, then he probably would have done this. He'd have gone right back. What's the context of the whole book of Hebrews? Jews converted to Christianity. When they convert to Christianity, all of a sudden life becomes very difficult for them and they're persecuted for it and they're having their homes taken away from them and they're being imprisoned and they're even being killed. And what happens? And they say, well, wait, this is not very easy. What we'd like to do is to go back to Judaism. And isn't it fascinating what the author is doing right here? When you were Jews, you venerated Abraham. You know what? Abraham never looked back. So you shouldn't either. And so what what we see in this then, once I come to follow Christ in faith, hey, there's no looking back. And if you start looking back, you're probably going to stop following Jesus. And you may just well go right back to where you were. Why would we want to do this? By the way, in the scripture, one of the worst things you can do and read about is someone who starts off in faith in God and then turns around and goes back. Lot's wife. Remember that story? Uh, incidentally, I tell, my pre- I tell the, the, the 
guys in my preaching class, I always tell them, hey, if they find out you're a preacher, you may be put on the spot to preach a little sermon or do a little devotional. Some of y'all may even, they find out you're a Christian, they may say, hey, get up here and say a word, do a little devotion. I'm going to give you a real simple three-point sermon or three-point devotion that you can do. It's on Lot's wife, right? Very simple points to remember. You can do this in a pinch. Uh, Lot's wife, first she halted, then she faulted, then she salted. Real easy, okay? Just, you got it. What about the Hebrews coming out of Egypt in the Exodus? And God brings them out of slavery. I mean, he rescues them from slavery. And they're out here in the wilderness, and God's taking care of them. What do they do? We want to go back to Egypt. Once again, dumb. Paul talked about a man named Demas who started out on the mission trips with him, but then he went back. Why? Because he said Demas loved the world. So once you look at me right here, you ready? Here's the big question for us. The fact that Abraham starts off following God in faith, not even knowing where he's going, and the fact that he never looks back, and the fact that he keeps moving forward and keeps focusing on God, this, this means that Abraham no longer identifies himself with the old home and the old moon God that he was worshiping, but now he identifies himself with the true God and with the new home that he is headed toward. And the question for every one of us in the room is this, how will you identify yourself? Do you identify yourself in Christ? Is that where you find your identity? Do you identify yourself with the eternal home and what is eternal that we're looking toward? Or do you identify yourself with your former life, with the world, with the things of sin. It's a struggle. Jesus said this. We often, uh, we often misunderstand and abuse this text of Scripture. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Is Jesus saying in this passage of Scripture, you cannot love your mother and father? Of course not. This is a passage about allegiance. Who do you pledge allegiance to? Where do you find your identity? Is it in Christ? Or is it in someone or something else? And by the way, what a huge word today for all of us, but especially a younger generation. We got a lot of young people today that are finding their identity not in Jesus, but in this right here. And they're looking on their social media and the world is telling them, hey, you know where you need to find your identity, what really makes you valuable is if you're pretty and skinny. And once again, if I can just be honest with you, that's dumb. Where you find your identity and your values, if you got money or if you got uh, athletic ability or singing ability or whatever it is kind of ability, you know where you need to find your identity? You need to find your identity in Jesus Christ who created you in his image. And you know that in Jesus he values you because you're created in his image. All this other stuff that you might draw your identity from, listen to me, young people, it's going to turn on you or it's going to turn to ash in your mouth. 
and the moths will eat it or it'll get all rusted or somebody will steal it. Don't find your identity in anyone or anything that's not eternal, that's not Jesus. Just don't do it, but that's a struggle. We're immersed in this world. We're our identity. We're immersed in sin. We're immersed in all of this. Uh, you know what? I read this this week about this man on the screen. This crazy story. This is Adolf Unona. Adolf Unona is a member of the parliament of the southwestern African country, Namibia. Now, listen to this. This is crazy. Just, just in 2020, just last year, Adolf here was elected to the parliament of his country. And he's a He's a really great guy. The story is saying, man, he does all this stuff for his people. He's a good legislator. He, he loves the people. He serves the people. But Adolf has got one really, really big hurdle to climb. You know what it is? Here's his full name. Now, you look at that and go, why would any person want to name their son Adolf Hitler in the last name? Well, you got to understand, the history of Namibia, you go all the way back to the end of the 19th century into the, into the end of World War I, Namibia was occupied by Germany. And so even to this day, German surnames, German names are very common in Namibia. And as he explains it, my parents, we, you know, we grew up in a very remote part of Namibia. We, we didn't even know who Adolf Hitler was. And my family just gave me these German names, first name Adolf. The, Hitler was another German name somewhere they had heard, and so they gave it to him. And so here's Adolf, and Adolf is very unlike Adolf Hitler. He's a good guy. But he has to overcome his identity. And he, and, he, and he tells the reporter in the story, yeah, people all the time ask me this, were your parents Nazis? Are you a Nazi? No, no, no. And he says he has to overcome this by the words that he says, by the things that he does to show people he's a good guy. And his story is a little bit like our story. We got to overcome this identity that we were so familiar with in sin before we came to Christ. This is what we have to crucify. This is what we have to die to. And here's the final thing, is this. If I'm a pilgrim, that means I'm looking for my eternal reward. It means I've left the temporal home and now I'm seeking an eternal home. So look at this, verse 16. But as it is, these pilgrims, these strangers, these exiles, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And so friends, what we've been saying, I don't need to belabor the point, but this is our focus. Not this home where we came from before Jesus, but this home that Jesus has prepared for us. And friends, if you think about it, a little bit like my golf illustration, if Jesus and eternity is your focus, Jesus said, hey, you know, the heart and the treasure, they go together. Wherever, you, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. You can even reverse that. If this is my focus, if this is my passion, Jesus and eternity, you know what? It's going to really impact right now. It's going to impact the way I think. It's going to impact the way I view the world. It's going to impact my attitude. It's going to impact the way I spend my money. It's going to impact the way I spend my time. It's going to impact the way I treat people. It's going to change me if I know what's coming, and that's where I'm focused. I've told you all this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because I love telling it, and I'm up here talking one of, my, one of my greatest childhood memories is the Miracle on Ice. If you're not familiar with the Miracle on Ice, 1980, the Winter Olympics are in Lake Placid, New York. 
The United States has made it to the quarterfinals of hockey. It's kind of surprising everybody would even make it that far. And they're going to play Russia in the quarterfinals. Now, you got to remember, about three weeks before Lake Placid, they had another game in Madison Square Garden in New York City, and the Russians beat them like 17 to 4, something crazy, huge, killed them. So nobody gives, nobody gives the Americans even the slightest chance of beating the Russians in hockey. This is in uh, January, February. I'm home. School is out. My brother is nine years older than me. Uh, my brother was a little bit like a dad to me that I never had. And my brother, he and I, our whole life was sports. I mean, we talked about sports. We went to sports. He took me to the Rangers games and Mavericks games and Cowboys games. I mean, everything was sports. And I'll never get this. I'm at home. School is out. I'm at home. And about 530, my brother comes busting in the door. He's come home from work. And he says, Todd, Todd, you're not going to believe it. You're not going to believe it. I go, what, what? We beat the Russians in hockey. And I'm like, what? Even at 11, I, I, had, I understood this. This is how old I was, 11. And he said, yeah, we won four to three. I went, you got to be kidding me. Now, this was kind of in the day and age where we said, don't tell me the score of the game. I'm DVRing it. We didn't have that kind of thing. I'm ancient, right? I mean, th this was even before VHS tapes. So that night at 8 o'clock, ABC aired the tape delay of the, of the hockey game. And I will never forget watching that game with my brother. And we were all fired up. And we were excited and watching it. And it got to the third period, and the United States scored that goal. They got up 4-3. And there's like 10, 12 minutes left in the game. And the Russians just all-out assault on the American goal. Jim Craig was the goalie. Man, he was stopping everything, blocking everything. And I'm going to tell you what. I loved watching that part of the game because I could watch it with a kind of a sense of peace, <laughs> right? Because I knew, the, I knew the final score. If I, had, if I had to watch that 12 minutes of that hockey game, wondering whether the Russians were going to score or not, it had taken years off the end of my life. I'd have been a nervous, it would have been nerve-wracking watching them. Kind of a little bit like watching the Cowboys in any game they play. Uh, but knowing the score changed the way I watched it. I was still fired up. I was still excited. But there was this peace. There was this kind of calm. There was kind of a comfort knowing we were going to win. And I'm telling you, friend, you don't have to live your life, life now like this. And you don't have to live in fear. And you don't have to live in paranoia. You don't have to live in panic. You don't have to live in all of this. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you know how this thing ends, don't you? And you know where you're headed. And that changes everything. And I love so much the last of this. Therefore, because these people followed God in faith, he is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared them a city. And I love that. He's not ashamed to be called their God. Do you know, years after Abraham is a guy named Moses. And kind of like God just showed up to Abraham one day and said, hey, Abraham, follow me. God just shows up to Moses one day and says, Moses, I want you to follow me. And when Moses says, hey, who are you? Do you remember what Exodus says? What does God say? God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Why is he their God? Because these were all men of faith. Listen to me. If you're a child of faith, did you know you can just insert your name right there? God would say, I am the God of Bob and David and 
Susan and Shelly. You ever gone to watch one of your kids do something at a sporting event or a concert or a play or anything like that, and they do something really good? What do you want to do? That's my kid, right? That's my boy. That's my girl. When you're following God in faith, do you understand that God is is looking at you saying, that's my boy. That's my girl. What better place to be in your life than living like that? with the favor of God and looking towards this home, this reward, this eternity that will never go away. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you so much for this passage of scripture that is so encouraging. Thank you for this, God. Thank you that life on this earth is not all that there is. And thank you, Lord, that we are living for something beyond this life. And so, Father, I pray that would shape and mold us to be like Christ. Lord, today I want to pray for anyone listening to me that is yet to come to that conclusion that you are, that you're real, that heaven is real. These promises are true. And I pray for anyone today who needs to just to die to self and to the old world and who needs to change their allegiance today and become the citizen of a new country, an eternal one. Lord, would you speak to that person today? Would you speak to them through your spirit and draw them to you by faith? Father, for those of us who know you, it's tempting to turn around and look back at the old country. Father, may we be like Abraham, resolute on the new country, focused on you, focused on eternity. Give us strength, Lord. Give us faith to do that. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.